Father, we thank you so much that you are our Father and you love us and um, that we have um, in common the fact that you sacrificed your Son so that we could be forgiven for our sins and that he rose from the dead so that we can um, live with you and be with you in eternity. And thank you for that, for that, that um, unites us together as, sis as sisters and as your daughters. Um, I pray that you would be exalted in my words and in your words and in your truth and in the hearts of all who are here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Kathy's going to pass out some notes for you all. I forgot about that. <laughs> Just to let you know, after, when I'm done speaking, I feel like I'm not very loud, but you can hear me okay? Okay. After I'm done speaking, there are going to be a few ladies who come up for just a, a few minutes of Q&A. So if you think of any questions that you want to ask during that time, um, you can do that. And thank you for those of you who are guests with us today. Are any of you, are you brave enough to raise your hand if you're a guest with us? Oh, there's one. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, yeah, you're a guest. <laughs> Joan's daughter-in-law, thanks for coming. <laughs> right, first of all, I just want to thank all of you for coming. And I realize you're all in different stages of life. Um, many... If, if not most of you are probably in the thick of it, raising children of all ages. Thank you for coming to learn. Some of you are not mothers yet, but someday may be. So I want to thank you for coming to learn and prepare for the future. <clears throat> Some of you have already raised your children, and you are pretty much finished with the formative years. Although I'm learning that parenting adults has its share of challenges. <laughs> Thank you for coming as well. For a while, I had the disposition that I didn't really need to learn or study more about parenthood because I'm mostly done with the training part, and mainly because I knew I would have regrets. <laughs> but as I studied, the Lord convicted me that I still need to... Um, be growing in wisdom in all areas, especially since I can be an encouragement to younger ladies. I want the things I tell them to be based on biblical truth and wisdom. Also, it is such a comfort to know that God's grace has covered my failures. He is faithful and powerful to accomplish his work in the lives of my children and yours, oftentimes in spite of us. Any good things that we have done have been because of God's strength and enablement. And some of you do not have children of your own. And I just want to especially thank you for coming, both to grow in wisdom and hopefully so that you know how to love and support and pray for the mothers that you know. So thank you. <clears throat> thank you all for being teachable, and I pray that you would be encouraged. 
Well, being a mother can be a daunting task. From the moment we first have a little life growing within us to the realization that this person that keeps getting bigger is going to have to come out. <laughs> I still remember my first pregnancy when I was about six months. It just dawned, dawned on me that there was no turning back. <laughs> um, so from that time when they are uh, their first inside of us to um, nurturing a helpless child and training them to eventual maturity, it can be very overwhelming. There are so many voices seeking to influence, influence us with ideas about what su successful parenting looks like. It can be tempting to, the look, to look to the wrong places for wisdom and direction. So at this point, I just want you to take a minute and think about what you do when you are facing a parenting question. Who do you, who do you go to initially? Do you immediately go to God, to prayer and his word? Do you go to your husband? Do you maybe go to an older, wiser woman that you know? Or do you go immediately to other places? The world around us defines success in raising children in many different ways. Behavior modification, making enough money to have a comfortable life, the highest and best education, accomplishment in sports, music, other skills, physical health, successful careers, or simply just that they would be happy. While these are not necessarily negative desires for our children, God's word gives us a far different goal. As Christian mothers, our greatest desire for our children should be that they would have a personal, growing relationship with Jesus. But even this cannot be accomplished by us. Only God can do this work in their hearts. The ultimate goal of parenting, as in all things, is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So success for us can only be defined as faithfulness, to what God, God calls us to be as mothers, for his glory. As Christian women, where do we look to know how to be faithful in this calling of motherhood? It seems that even in the church, it is almost a default for many to go immediately to the internet with questions, or to peers, or both. And, you know, on the internet, a lot of times it's young moms that you don't even know, writing blogs. <laughs> and actually, a lot of these issues that um, we go to the internet about are not really the most critical, crucial areas that we need to be concerned about. Um, the most, not the most important thing, which is, how do we please God in this role of being a mom? So what or who is the ultimate source of wisdom? the one who created us, the one true God. We should be looking to him and his word for wisdom rather than our culture. If we have put our faith in Jesus, in his death and resurrection to deliver us from our sin, then God has adopted us as his children, and he is our heavenly father. 
He not only models for us what a parent, parent should be, he also instructs, instructs us in his word how to please him in our parenting. And he enables us in our weakness to be faithful in this. So today I would like to present five areas in which God and his word calls us to be faithful as we raise our children. These are five applications of a godly mother's wisdom. The first area is the foundation for the, all the others, so we will be spending a lot of time on just the first point, which is that the wise mother fears the Lord. As women, we are tempted to fear many things, especially as it relates to our families. From the moment they are conceived, our children provide us with many opportunities to worry and fear. We can lie awake at night thinking of all the possible things that could happen to the, to the ones that we love. Um, a lot of these fears are about their physical health and safety, but we can also fear harmful influences on their souls. Oftentimes our decisions, big and small, are driven by fear rather than by faith. I have found that while social media can be a helpful tool, more often than not, it fuels fear in young moms. They can read up on education methods, vaccinations, sleep training, breastfeeding, allergies, and all kinds of nutrition advice. Bad food, good food, superfood, <laughs> sports, sleepovers, and I'm sure you can think of other ones that I'm not even aware of, <laughs> things I've never heard of. Um, you name it, you can find many opinions on the topic. But the question is, do we believe that if we make all the right choices regarding our children, we will have, not have anything to fear? If I can control everything that they see, everything they eat, everything they come in contact with, everything they are influenced by, nothing can harm them. This presents a temptation to trust in our own abilities and choices to prevent anything difficult or harmful or negative from happening to our children. We can be tempted to depend on <clears throat> our ability to make our ch children good by keeping evil away. I can be tempted to depend on my ability to keep my child healthy by keeping germs and disease away or on my ability to give my child the ideal life, however, however I define that. Well, did you know, I'm sure you did, that the Bible makes a connection between fear and wisdom. According to scripture, what are we to fear? Um, just a side note, I'm gonna be going through a lot of scripture, so don't try to turn to everything. All the references should be in your notes that you can look at later. So according to scripture, what are we to fear? Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And Proverbs 31.30, Charm is deceitful, and a beauty, and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. So the Bible tells us to fear one thing only. Actually, <clears throat> one person, God. <clears throat> and in doing that, we will find wisdom. It's not that we don't try to provide a safe environment for our children. The issue is, am I trusting in myself 
and whatever other sources I choose to believe, or am I trusting God fully? If we are too preoccupied with our performance as mothers, we can find ourselves giving very little thought to fearing God and trusting in Him. So let's look at what it means to fear the Lord. How does the Bible define that? Psalm 128.1 says, How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. And Psalm 112, verse 1, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. In these passages, we see that fearing the Lord is the same as walking in His ways and obeying Him and delighting in His commandments. It is to obey Him. Trusting God and obeying His word are the active steps we take in fearing God. We believe God's word more than our own fears. In order to believe it, we need to be familiar with it. We need to read it and meditate on it, and this becomes the basis of the decisions we make. If we know God and his word, we have nothing to fear. The psalmist in chapter 46 says, God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Those who fear God have nothing else to fear. One area in which our fear often surfaces, or at least mine does, is regarding submitting to our husband's leadership and decisions which affect our children, both physically and spiritually. 1 Peter 3 tells us that as our hope is placed firmly in God, we can submit to our husbands without being frightened by any fear. So even Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that we have, as women, have a tendency to fear. Um, so we can submit without being afraid of what will happen to our children as a result of our husband's decisions, knowing that they are ultimately in God's hands. People who fear God trust in his character. Carolyn Mahaney says that faith toward God is the foundation of effective mothering. Success as a mother doesn't begin with hard, doesn't begin with hard work or sound principles or consistent discipline, as necessary as these are. It begins with God his character, his faithfulness, his promises, his sovereignty. And our, as our understanding of these truth, truths increases, so will our faith in mothering. Do you remember Hannah's story in 1 Samuel 1? She was barren for many years, and when the Lord finally blessed her with a child, this was her prayer. For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord. So the question is, do we have enough faith to surrender our children to the Lord, as Hannah did? God has brought me faithfully on a journey of trust with my children. Each new stage in their lives, from the time they are in the womb onward, provides new opportunities to trust. Think about just the, this, just the act of sleeping, and this is actually something I wrestled with, Sleeping with a newborn baby um, is an acknowledgement of my weakness. I need sleep. <laughs> and my dependence on God to care for my children when I'm not able to care for them when I'm sleeping. Um, he never sleeps. 
from infancy to the first day of school to sending them off to camp, and perhaps the scariest, driving, <laughs> to sending them off to college. God has promised and proven to me, and many of you here, that he is far more capable of taking care of them than me. He, all, he doesn't need me, and his love is also far greater than mine. Psalm 34, verses 8 through 11 says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do suffer lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. This is exactly what we should say to our children. Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And that brings us to our next point. Fearing God is the foundation for everything else we do as mothers. The following points are applications of what that fear of the Lord looks like as we seek to obey him in our role as mothers. So secondly, the wise mother instructs her children. As we just heard in the Psalms, the most important thing we teach our children is the fear of the Lord. And the most effective way we teach this is by modeling the fear of the Lord in our own lives. This speaks louder than anything we say. That being said, the Bible is clear that as mothers, we need to give our children verbal instruction. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And recently, I realized that while most of the Proverbs are from a father to his son, Proverbs 31 was actually given to a son by his mother. Proverbs 31.1 says, The words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. It makes sense that his mother would be teaching them about um, a godly woman because he, she was trying to teach him what to look for in a godly wife. And in verse 26, Proverbs 31 says, She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. In 2 Timothy, we read about the powerful influence Timothy's mother and grandmother had on his life. In chapter 1, Paul tells him, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well, in you as well. And in chapter three, that you remain faithful to what you have learned and believed, because you know from whom you learned it, and that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are capable of giving you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In these verses, we see that Lois and Eunice taught Timothy the scriptures, and that it was not just head knowledge in them, but he saw that this knowledge for them became a sincere faith. So just like these ladies, we can teach our children both by our instruction and example. There are many important things to teach our children, but I'm just going to focus on three basic ones. First, we teach them to be God-fearers. This is where God begins. So we should begin there too. Proverbs 9.10 again says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon specifically instructs those are young. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. 
They need to learn from the very beginning who God is and where they are in relation to him. From this basis, we can focus on the gospel and their need for personal conversion. Though the father is the head of the family, we as mothers are quite possibly the greatest influence in our children's lives during their formative years because we spend the most time with them. We can teach them to fear God, to trust him, believing in his word, and to obey him. They learn how to fear God by seeing how we fear God, as we already talked about. Secondly, we teach them God's word. Many of you are familiar with Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. These verses are a picture of what our teaching is to be, heart-focused and repetitive. It takes time and diligence. We teach them both formally and informally. Formally, we teach them God's word. We show them who God is, what he has done, and how he wants us to live. And expose them to as much of God's word and God's people as possible. We always, even though my husband's a pastor, so it's a little different for us, but we always try to say, um, you know, when the church doors are open, we're there with our kids. Um, And just a side note, while structure and schedules are important, sometimes we need to be a little flexible and fluctuate because of the priority of worshiping and fellowshipping with the body of Christ. Sundays are just hard. Naps are missed. Germs are shared. (laughs) Athletic events are skipped. But your children are learning from you what is most important in life. What are you teaching them? Also, the method of schooling you decide on your children is secondary to you taking the responsibility for their knowledge of God and his word. J.C. Ryle said, You cannot make your children love the Bible, I admit. None but the Holy Spirit can give us a heart to delight in the word. But you can make your children acquainted with the Bible. And be sure they cannot be acquainted with that blessed book too soon or too well. The informal side of teaching them the Bible involves showing them how it applies to life. What we teach is the fruit of having God's word in our hearts and obeying him. As Deuteronomy says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Otherwise, we are hypocrites and teaching our children to be hypocrites. We teach mostly by the way we live, our example. Do I know and love God's word? Is it in my heart? If so, I am able to pass it on to my kids in life situations, in relationships, and different circumstances as they come up. This is where teaching, while we are sitting, walking, lying down, and rising up, comes in. And this is where most of our instruction happens. We talk with our children about life and what God's word says about it. All of it as it's happening. They watch us respond to people and events and situations. They watch how we respond to them and their sin. We are showing them how our love for God 
and understanding of his word inform the way we live. Third, we teach them to honor and obey their parents. God, our maker, is the ultimate authority. He knew that the primary way for children to learn to submit to his authority was for them to submit to the, the authority of their parents. Paul gives us a direct, gives a direct command to children in Ephesians 6, 1-3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And in Colossians 3.20, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. The Bible's message to our children should be our message to our children. Honor and obey your parents. This is what we are to teach them. This is how they are to obey God. He has delegated this authority to us, so we are representatives of God and his authority. Ted Tripp says the definition of obedience is the willing submission of one person to another without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. Obedience is the willing submission of one person to another without challenge, without excuse, and without delay. This certainly does not come naturally, so it is our job to train them to obey. We, tra we train them how to obey the first time we speak a command. I shouldn't have to raise my voice or repeat myself or count to three. Otherwise, I'm training them that only until I do those things do they need to obey. <clears throat> Sometimes they seem to have selective hearing, and they say that they didn't hear me. But they really should learn to prioritize the sound of your voice, your speaking voice, not your yelling voice. <laughs> um, I remember hearing when I was a, a young mom, somebody gave a testimony that they don't remember their mom ever yelling at them one time in their life. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. Um, I did not succeed in that. <laughs> I want to meet that lady sometime. <laughs> um, so it, sometimes it helps to get a verbal acknowledgement response from them, like, yes, ma'am, or yes, mommy. Uh, it also helps to teach them to give you eye contact when you're speaking to them. And another um, little practical thing, don't tell them to do something unless you're ready to enforce it. So be careful how you dole out your commands. <laughs> um, and be careful of asking them questions like, do you want to put that toy away? Or guess the answer is no. <laughs> or are you going to eat your broccoli? <laughs> Again, no. Um, make sure commands are clearly commands so that there is no confusion. And remember, you are in charge. They are not in charge. You are, God has given you that role and that authority. Some children are very clear and open about what is going on in their hearts. There were several times when one of our boys would blurt out, I really hate being told what to do. Um, thank you for sharing your heart. Um, <laughs> Don't we all really, don't we all not like being told what to do? Um, but God, in his perfect wisdom, 
and order has assigned to us all the role of submitting to authority. The sooner our children learn this, the better life will go for them, and the more disposed they will be to submit to their loving and righteous creator, both to his commands and to his good plans for their life. Okay, so we talked about obedience. The, the definition of honor is loving respect that holds the parents' God-given authority in high regard. Loving respect that holds the parents' God-given authority in high regard. This speaks more to the attitude, while obedience addresses actions. God gives us a serious warning regarding rebellious children in Proverbs 13, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. In other words, this child will die. And on the contrary, we see in Ephesians that life goes better for children who obey and honor their parents, thereby, thereby obeying and honoring God. Sarah Edwards was the wife of 18th century American pastor Jonathan Edwards and the mother of 11. It was said of her that her system of discipline was begun at a very early age, and it was her rule to resist the first as well as every subsequent exhibition of temper or disobedience in the child, however young, until its will was brought into submission to the will of its parents, wisely reflecting that until a child will obey his parents, he can never be brought to obey God. And once again, our children are watching us, and they learn from the example of how we are obeying and honoring authority in our lives. So first and foremost, am I submitting to the Lordship of Christ? Do they see me doing what he commands in his word without challenge, without delay, and without excuse? Am I submitting to my husband's leadership? Do they see me treating him with respect and presenting a united front? In other words, Dad and I are on the same page. You're not going to get a different answer from me than you got from him. Do our, see, do our kids see us honoring elders and pastors in the church in our attitudes toward them and the ways they are leading? Do they see us obeying the law and honoring the leaders of our country, not speaking ill of them? Rick and I uh, decided to take the stance when our kids were young that whenever the boys got in any kind of trouble in school or in church, we would be on the teacher's side. Sometimes this is hard because um, sometimes the teachers are wrong. <laughs> um, but a huge part of submitting to authority is submitting when authority fails. And um, this is a valuable lesson to teach our children when they are young. Human authority will always be imperfect, but God still commands us to submit. So we're actually submitting to God when we submit to authority that is imperfect. The third application of the mother's wisdom is the wise mother loves her children. In Titus 2, one of the things older women in the church are instructed to teach younger women is to love their children. This pa passage calls us to more than a sacrificial love. It calls us to delight in our children. Do they know we love them? Do we show them tenderness and affection? Sometimes it's hard. 
Sometimes, in the busyness and chaos, we can get caught up in ourselves, even though we tell ourselves we are doing all these things for our family. We just want them to obey for our convenience, and then we, we get angry when they don't. Do our children see us smile? Um, are we happy in our calling to care for them? Or do they see us as mostly cranky and stressed? Do they feel like a burden or a joy to us? How do I view my children? Do I view them as primarily work, a responsibility, a burden, sacrifice? Psalm 127 calls them a reward and a blessing. This affection can be displayed in lots of different ways, but mostly just simple acts of love. Cooking. Food reaches the heart, especially with boys. Reading to them, talking with them, diligently praying for them and with them, giving them words of encouragement, and even taking the time to play a game with them. An important way we can demonstrate care for them is just by listening with undivided attention. There was one time uh, when Luke was really little that he was trying to get my attention unsuccessfully. And so he crawled up into my lap and he put his little hands on my cheeks and faced me towards him and he said, look at me, son. <laughs> he had heard that a few times. <laughs> um, so just as we require them to give us eye contact, we should give them eye contact too. Um, sometimes it's really hard to care about all the things that they want to talk to us about, um, like all the intricacies of a video game or the plots and characters of books they're reading um, or cool cars. I mean, you can tell I have boys. Um, <laughs> but I, you can all fill in the blank with your children and their interests. Um, I heard this principle many years ago that if we listen to our children when they are young, they will talk to us as they get older. If we listen to our children when they are young, they will talk to us as they get older. Our desire is to cultivate relationships with them. Quantity of time is what leads to quality of time. A significant way in which we love our children is to discipline them, which is the next application number four. The wise mother disciplines her children. In Hebrews 12, we see that the Lord disciplines those he loves. In the same way, if we love our children, we will discipline them. In fact, according to Proverbs 13, he who withholds the rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Lack of discipline is an expression of hate, not love. There is a myth out there, lots of myths actually, but one is that children come as a clean slate or neutral, not bad or good, just blank. If this were so, we would not have any trouble. It would be an easier job to inform them and mold them. But what does God tell us about how children come to us? Proverbs 22 says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So that's how they come to us. But the rod of discipline will remove it far from him. The sad reality is that our children come to us as broken, depraved, self-absorbed, 
slaves to sin. You don't have to teach a toddler or even a crawler how to sin. Um, and I think sometimes we can make excuses easily for our children and their sin. Well, they didn't get enough sleep, or they're hungry, or they're sick, or it's because of what they ate. Um, while those may explain some of their behavior, it's not an excuse for their sin, and they're not sinning because of those outward influence. They're sin sinning because it's in their heart, just like it's in all of our hearts. Um, the book of Proverbs is full of helpful principles regarding the discipline and training of children. Proverbs 23 says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, which just means an untimely death. So don't we want to rescue the souls of our children? And this one is specifically for us as mothers, Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. The rod mentioned in these verses is talking about corporal or physical discipline. In the Bible, the word rod could mean a twig or a small flexible branch or switch. It also stands for a rod like a shepherd's staff used for guidance and care. The type of physical discipline we use should be something that will cause pain, but not bruise, especially if it's administered on that area of the child's body with extra padding. <laughs> if you are interested in obtaining an effective, non-injurious tool for the purpose of this kind of discipline, see me afterwards. Um, <clears throat> some of you may be aware of a recent policy statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which warns against the harmful effects of corporal punishment in the home. They define spanking as non-injurious, open-handed hitting with the intention of modifying child behavior. Based on several studies, they conclude that it's not an effective strategy to teach right from wrong. And they say, corporal punishment is associated with increased aggression and makes it more likely that children will be defiant in the future. They also represent corporal punishment, according to a quote from a clinical psychologist in 1970, so it's a little outdated, um, who called it, okay, this is awful, but they, he called it the pow-wow approach. He explained, it's my pow followed by his wow, <laughs> demonstrating how he would swat a child's bottom. He goes on to say, I know some books say parents shouldn't spank, but I think it's a mistake. A poor mother is left with nowhere to go. She's mad at the kid, has had it up to the eyebrows with him, and longs to give him a big smack in the behind. But she's been told she shouldn't. She should. And it's good for her, because it releases her tension. And the child definitely prefers, prefers it to long parental harangues. Well, how do we respond to this as Christians? First of all, this last quote is nowhere close to a biblical definition of discipline. But this is how the world chooses to define it, which makes it easier for them to dismiss it and oppose it. Secondly, the AAP has never conducted a scientific study on subjects who are trained and truly employed biblical spanking methodologies. Most importantly, 
when has the church ever taken its cues from the world and from the culture on how to live? Just look at what the world produces. Why would we seek wisdom on this or any other cru crucial issue from fools? In our current climate, there may be a fear of legal action for corporal discipline. While we certainly need to be careful and discreet to avoid unnecessary exposure, this is ultimately a question of faith. Will I obey God even when there are risks? And uh, for further discussion on this, the last two pages of your notes has uh, suggestions when using the rod, which you can look at later. The rod, or disciplining our children, teaches the principle that sin leads to suffering. It is the nature of the human heart to avoid pain. If pain is a consequence of disobedience, it motivates compliance. In doing this, we emphasize over and over again to our children the authority of God and the need to obey, exposure of sin, and their need for Christ, the Savior. So uh, with that, I just want to give a few basic guidelines for discipline. First one is consistency. Um, one of our boys, when I quote our boys, it's usually one particular boy. And a lot of you know who that is. And he, he's fine with me sharing this. <laughs> um, anyway, he would always say, not always, often, he would say, I don't know why you keep doing this. It's not working. <laughs> so, in my mind, I'm thinking, he's right, it's not working. Um, <laughs> but that's not why we do it. We don't do it because it works. We do it because this is what God tells us to do. And even if they're not obeying God, we still need to obey God. Ecclesiastes 8.11 um, says, Because the sentence against an evil, evil deed is not executed quickly, Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Consistency means that we only give commands that we are willing to enforce, as I said before. The times when I was inconsistent actually made it harder for the boys. I would actually end up having to discipline them more because they saw that there was some leeway, there was some leniency. So it would be partially my fault that they had to experience more pain. According to Proverbs 13, as I mentioned above, it takes diligence. Our diligent discipline is an act of love. And sometimes, as a young mom of children, you know, when your husband comes, comes home and says, what did you do today? It's mostly discipline. <laughs> Can't remember what else I did, but I know I did a lot of that. Um, so the second principle, um, or guideline for discipline is gentleness. We never discipline out of anger. We use the appropriate level of force, and it needs to cause pain without bodily harm. Methods change, of course, as they get older, and discipline looks different with each child at each age. When they are very young, physical pain is the only thing they understand. And as they get older, you may take away privileges, the things that mean a lot to them individually. Um, like, I don't know, dessert, um, time with friends, taking away a phone. That was a very effective one for us. Um, so you just need to use wisdom as they get older and, and you see where their hearts are. But always keep in mind that in order to show them that sin leads to suffering, it has to hurt. 
Bruce Ray, in his book, Withhold Not Correction, describes the discipline process with our children as, as an act of worship in which we, we reflect the character of God. Remember, we are a representative of his authority. What is God like? How does he deal with us? Romans 2.4 says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And he tells us how to deal with others. Galatians 6.1 Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, that you too will not be tempted. And then 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, in the hope that God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Sometimes we think of these principles that I just read um, are just for our dealings with other people. However, they do apply to our relationships with our children as well, because they are people, <laughs> little people. Gardner Springs says, a mild, affectionate government is the most authoritative, so your authority ought to be exceedingly kind. Children are naturally displeased, even angry when governed, but they ought to find no foothold for their anger in their parents' behavior. The human heart revolts at simply being restrained, and all that much more when the authority is rash and unkind. Weave in your kindness with every act of discipline, and your government will rarely fail to influence. That brings us to the next guideline, which is humility. As I remember God's mercy and kindness towards me, I am more disposed to extend to my children the same mercy and kindness. I should look for the common denominator between their son and mine. This is what keeps me mercifully bent towards them and to give them what they need rather than what they deserve all the time. What is my version of this sin? Have I modeled this sin, telling them to do one thing while I'm doing another? I should take the opportunity to model repentance in that case and confess to them how I struggle with this in, in, in you know, this way, such as, you know, I'm disciplining them for whining, but they see me complaining, so I need to repent of that with them and show them how I struggle. If they see me as perfect, which they don't, but <laughs> they don't see the areas where I struggle, then it's not going to give them hope that they can overcome their sins. Or if I've just been angry with them about their lack of self-control, I have sinned in the same way. Before I expect them to repent, I need to confess my sin and ask their forgiveness and God's. I have found that God is always reminding me of my sin as I'm confronting their sin. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. Our, our children need to see that there is hope for sinners. So they need to see that we are sinners. Believe me, they do. Just as he can forgive me and change me, he can do the same for them. So I can always be telling them how God has changed me and giving them um, specific scriptures that he's used in my life. Uh, and that, that leads to the um, fourth point, shepherding. This is the point at which we call them to repentance and give them the hope of the gospel. 
We are seeking to, to discern what is going on in their hearts as best as we can, and then how to help them accordingly. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, again, one that we think about when we're dealing with adults, but it relates to our children as well. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. And then Proverbs 20, verse 5, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. So we're trying to, you know, find out and discern what's going on in their hearts and help them see it as well. Which, it takes a while for them to get it. I mean, it takes a while for me to get it. So, um, teaching them to identify those things. We are to remind them that their sin is primarily against God. David said to the Lord in Psalm 51, Against you and you only I have sinned. But again, I am a representative of his authority and the offense against God. So help them think through or, or show them what the nature of the temptation or the sin is in their heart. Was it anger, selfishness, envy, pride, lack of gratitude, revenge? So as we help them to identify and acknowledge their specific sins and encourage them to ask forgiveness, we give them an opportunity to confess their sins to God and ask for his forgiveness as well, but we can't really force them to pray. Um, but we can offer that to them over and over again. And then, um, as well, we can guide them um, to think about how they should have responded to the temptation. Uh, and then one last encouragement regarding um, training our children. Our hope needs to be in the right place. My hope is in God rather than in my children. If my hope is attached to their compliance, I will be frustrated and disappointed. But if my hope is firmly placed in God alone, I will trust him and obey him no matter how my children respond. And that brings us to our, the last point, number five, the wise mother depends on the Lord. The main way we show our dependence on the Lord is through prayer. We pray primarily for our children's salvation and growth, knowing that God is the one who does this work. Gardner Springs says, God means for us to renounce our self-confidence and feel our dependence on him. When we fail, as certainly we will to some extent, we will lie prostrate on our faces and carry our children to the God of all grace and power. There were a few times in dealing with a belligerent child who would not be quiet and listening and listen to me during a time of confrontation just out of sheer desperation, I would just fall on my knees and start praying out loud. And that, I mean, that was the only thing that would make him quiet. <laughs> That's not why I did it. I was really desperate. But for some reason, when he wasn't respecting me, he still had that respect and acknowledgement of God and his presence with us. And then he could hear how I was praying for him. If he wouldn't listen to me telling him these things, he could hear how I was praying for him. Susanna Wesley mother to John and Charles. She gave birth to 19 children in 21 years. Sadly, only 10 of them survived past the age of two. But when she put her apron over her head, they knew to leave her alone. This wasn't for me time, but for prayer time. She was well aware of her weaknesses 
and that she could only be a faithful mom with God's strength and power and grace. I need time alone with God. I am weak, but he is strong and has promised his sufficient grace to me. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. He has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And from Ted Tripp, nothing will provide your children with an understanding of the power of the gospel like your love and dependence on God. As we try to pull some things together in summary, I just want to look at Titus 2, 3 through 5, which says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor excite too much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Notice, notice, first of all, the valuable resource God has given the church in older ladies. So in addition to going to God and his word for wisdom in the area of motherhood um, and many other areas, I want to encourage you all to ask wiser older women for advice and counsel. And older ladies, be ready and willing. This is a clear area where all of us can be obedient. And you might think, as I do, well, I failed in so many ways. Um, but remember what I just read in 2 Corinthians, that Paul boasted about his weaknesses? This is a chance for us to boast about our weaknesses so that the power of Christ um, can be manifested. And they can hopefully learn from our failures instead of their own, or maybe in addition to their own. Um, secondly, there is another resource mentioned in this passage where sometimes we forget to look Part of being subject to our husbands is looking to them for leadership in raising our children. And sometimes we are tempted to think we know better because we are with them all, all day, but that can actually cause us to lose perspective at times. We need to make sure we are on the same page as our husbands in this area and to honor their desires and direction when it comes to our children. Again, putting our hope in God, not them. Lastly, the passage states that we are to be workers at home. This doesn't mean a woman can never work outside the home. However, it takes a lot of time and energy to be faithful to this biblical call of motherhood. You just can't do it if you're not there. I'm so thankful that my husband had the conviction, as many of yours do as well, that he would do whatever he needed so that I could be home with our children. He saw the value of a mother's influence. Sometimes this means taking a hard look at our standard of living and what we can live without. Sadly, in our world, we see women pursuing careers outside the home as their primary focus, and oftentimes their children and, and homes and husbands suffer when they get what's left over. I have been convicted many times on this point that as diligently as we see other women pursuing excellence in their careers outside the home, I should be even more diligent in my vocation as a wife and as a mother, as a homemaker, with its eternal value. 
what a great privilege it is. It is tempting to think that our goal as Christian parents is our child's salvation and growth in Christ. This is certainly our desire, but it cannot be accomplished by us, so it can't really be a goal. Salvation is God's work. Only He can bring the dead to life and give them the gift of faith and repentance. Even though we feel like we know our children so well, and we try so hard to see God working in their hearts, it is good to remember that we don't know or see all that God is doing in their hearts and lives. Just as in all things, he is working in many ways that we don't understand or know about. We can also find ourselves thinking, if I follow this model of parenting, if I take certain steps, then the end result will be a redeemed child. Like it's a formula that we can follow with guaranteed results and that we can have control over it. But the older our kids get, the more we see how little control we have over their hearts and the actions that come out of those hearts. Our goal must be faithfulness. Our children are not really ours. God has put them in our care, and they are a stewardship. We want to be faithful stewards of these precious souls. Um, as, as parents, we fail over and over again. Thankfully, God works through us and in spite of us. So whatever good things we see in our children, God receives the glory, which is our ultimate goal as moms as we started out, to glorify God and to lift him up. God used one of our boys in particular, yes, that same one, um, to teach me that being a mom is more about God changing me than changing my children. Uh, our son was very strong-willed for many years. Um, he was angry. He had no self-control. Lying was his default. No matter what we did or said, he would not change. And then I was convicted that it wasn't about God changing him, but this was all about God changing me. God was using him to refine me, to make me patient and self-controlled, to cause me to depend completely on him and not on my own abilities or wisdom. God could have changed his heart sooner, but he didn't give him a new heart until he was 15. Parenting is about me being changed and transformed and purified into what God wants me to be for his glory. James 1 tells us that if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it, and he will give it generously. So let's pray right now and ask God for his wisdom. Father, once again, we acknowledge that you are our creator, and you are the source of all wisdom and strength and grace. And we need you. We need your help. We need your guidance. Um, and so we ask, all of, all of us ask um, for your continued help and guidance. And that you would help us to be faithful and obedient. And that you would make us the women you want us to be. That we'd be pleasing to you and that you would um, be glorified in whatever roles you give us at this time and in the times to come. In Jesus' name, amen.